Thank you, Owen. Let me add my welcome to, uh, to that that Owen gave you uh, earlier. It's great you've joined with us uh, today uh, for our service online. I'd love to be able to greet you in person, uh, but sadly, that's not possible at the moment. As Owen said, today we come to the final section of the book of Ecclesiastes. This book has been the main focus of our teaching uh, through the summer uh, and into uh, the autumn, and, and we now conclude our series. Through much of the book, we've seen Solomon struggle with what he sees as the meaninglessness of life. Yes, this is Solomon, the king of Israel, the king who ruled over Israel for some 40 years, the king who in human terms had everything, untold wealth, unchallenged authority, power, servants who attended to his every need. The king who, when he first came to the throne and was offered his choice of gifts by God, chose a discerning heart to govern the people and to distinguish between right and wrong. This is the same Solomon whose wisdom writings are contained in the book of Proverbs, where in so many of his sayings, he talks about character and consequences. For example, in Proverbs 3, he says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life for many years and bring you prosperity. And later in Proverbs 3, he writes, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will bring over with new wine. How then have we come to the point where Solomon is struggling with the meaning of life? Well, in his earlier writings in Proverbs, they were written when he was younger. But through his reign, Solomon took many foreign wives who benefited him politically, but not spiritually. We're told in 1 Kings 11 that he had 700 wives, 700 foreign wives and 300 concubines. These foreign wives introduced Solomon to foreign religions and took his focus away from the one true God, leading him to make all sorts of compromises. In short, he was what we might term a backslidden believer. The book of Ecclesiastes reflects the journey he's been on. Much of the book confirms his personal discovery that life under the sun, or in this life, everything is meaningless. He couldn't find true and lasting satisfaction in work, wealth, or worldly pleasures, and nor were we. But alongside sections that talk about the vanity of life, there are what the commentator describes as joy passages, where Solomon affirms that life is indeed meaningful, as he had understood in his writings in Proverbs. And today we come to one of those passages. You might question this as you hear it read and listen to the talk of us aging and of death, but stick with me and we'll discover why it's described as a joy passage. We're going to look at Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 7. And we're going to run through to the end of uh, chapter 12. But we're going to do so in three sections, each of which will be read by Emma. 
the passages will appear on your screen. But let me encourage you, uh, grab a Bible if you've got one to hand or uh, on your electronic device if you've got a Bible on there and follow along as Emma reads to us. Thank you, Emma. Whatever you see, your eyes see. But know that for what all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So then, banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigour are meaningless. Thank you, Emma. My first theme is rejoice in life. We can see immediately why this is described as a joy passage. Solomon begins by likening life to light. I wonder, have you ever lain awake in the morning in bed as the sun rises, marveling at the change that the light brings? Maybe it's not quite so spectacular here in Berkshire uh, where there's so much light pollution. But I can remember a holiday uh, in a cottage on Forestry Commission land in Yorkshire where nighttime was pitch black. And as the sun rose in the morning, the contrast was just amazing. Light brings a sense of well-being, of clarity. Being able to see is so important to us. In the same way, Solomon says that life is good and that we should enjoy it. Whether we live many years or few, we should make the most of them and enjoy life to the full. In verse 9, he tells us, follow the ways of your heart and whatever your eyes see. Wow. At this point, you may have one of two reactions. You'll either be saying, hey, steady on, Solomon. That can't be right. What about what I read elsewhere in Scripture to avoid such things as sexual immorality and impurity and promiscuity, idolatry and drunkenness and wild partyings? Surely you can't be saying that we should enjoy all of that. Or you'll be saying, that's right, Solomon. That's what I wanted to hear. I knew it was okay for me to be living exactly as I please and to please myself. I'm enjoying having a good time. No, Solomon is not encouraging us to live recklessly or selfishly. There's a sense in which the young are carefree. Maybe that's not true for all, and I recognize the stresses and strains that some are feeling around exams during the pandemic and the measures being taken to mitigate its effects and around future career prospects due to the impact on the economy. However, when we were able to travel, it became very common for young people to take a year out before going on to further education or after completing their studies to travel the world and make the most of their freedoms before taking on the added responsibility that comes with owning a property or having a mortgage or supporting a family. Solomon is encouraging us to enjoy life. Many of the things he's written about are good. It's helpful and good for our self-esteem to work. 
it's useful to have money, not just for the essentials of life, but also for the occasional luxury. It's good to have fun in life. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, we see God creating all things, the heavens and the earth, night and day, land and sea, birds, fish, animals, and human beings. And having created all things, God declared that they were good. They were made for our enjoyment, and we were made to enjoy them and to rule over God's creation and to be fruitful. It was only as Adam and Eve went against God's instructions and sought to be like God that sin entered into the world and things that were created for our enjoyment became objects that were capable of misuse and abuse. One of the consequences of Adam and Eve sinning was that they and all that come after them would die. Solomon goes on to tell us in the second part of that verse that there will be consequences from how we choose to live. He says, But know, for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. We'll come to that a bit later, but now uh, Emma is going to read the first uh, few verses of chapter 12, uh, verses uh, 1 to 8. Thank you, Emma. Okay, chapter 12. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light, and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain. When the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men stoop. When the grinders cease because they're off you, and those looking through the windows grow dim. When the doors to the street are closed, and the sound of the grinding fades. When people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their song grow faint. And when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond trees blossom and the grasshopper drags itself along and no and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well. And the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. My second theme is remember your creator. In this next section, Solomon talks a lot in picture form about the aging process and how aspects of our bodies begin to fail or weaken as we get older and approach death. Most of our regulars watching won't be able to identify personally with this, though every one of us will have seen it in our parents or grandparents or others around us. He talks in verse 1 about before the days of trouble come, or in other words, before the days of sickness and bodily decline. In verse 3, he likens our bodies to a house, the keepers of the house being our arms and legs, which, he says, begin to tremble in older age. We begin to stoop. You know, I can remember well my mother-in-law 
uh, into her 80s and 90s, becoming really stooped, almost to the point of being bent double. He talks about the grinders ceasing as our teeth fall out, as we have fewer teeth with which to uh, eat and chew food. And he talks about those looking through the windows growing dim when our eyesight starts to fail us. And then in verse 4, he goes on to talk about when the doors to the street are closed. You know, we get more fearful about going out as we get older. Actually, through COVID, the government actually has sought to protect uh, those who are older from the virus by urging them to stay in and stay at home. But many of us, even without uh, COVID, get more fearful about going out in older age. He talks about when people rise up at the sound of birds, a description of us not being able to sleep as soundly as when we were young. The slightest thing awakens us. And then he says, but all their songs grow faint. Our hearing starts to fail us. And we get more fearful of heights. In verse 9, he says, we get more fearful of heights, either because of shortness of breath or maybe our increasing unsteadiness. And then I love this next piece in verse 9. I can identify with this. When the almond tree blossoms, um, a description of uh, our hair going gray in older age, or maybe uh, for some of us falling out. And then when uh, the grasshopper drags itself along, we struggle with bearing any weight or load as we get older. And then finally in verse 5, he talks about desire no longer stirred. Our energy and our drive diminishes. You know, the other day I looked at uh, my Fitbit record. It told me, <laughs> it told me that I'd slept the previous week for one hour and one minute. Which, since I don't wear it in bed, tells you something about my declining energy levels. It had clearly captured my armchair snoozes. And then in verse 6, he talks about then people go to their eternal home. Eventually, we die, as depicted by uh, the silver cord being severed and the golden bowl broken. Solomon was doubtless basing his comments on his personal experience, as well as possibly seeing uh, others getting older and weaker. I can certainly identify with some of those in the list, although not all just yet. Over the past few months, I've done a couple of jobs that serve to confirm what Solomon is observing. Helping out in my son's garden entailed moving several tons of earth and stone chippings. And then more recently, helping repair the banks around the bowling green required a small group, of which, believe it or not, I was the youngest, uh, to remove several tons of earth to create a space for a breeze block wall to be built. I can recall two recurring themes as I did this work. Firstly, 40 years of largely office-based work 
hasn't equipped me for this. And secondly, you're not as young as you used to be. So unappealing though this may sound to you, stay with me and by the end I trust you'll appreciate why this is a joy passage. Rather than starting verse 1 with remember you're going to die, which wouldn't be very appealing, would it? Solomon starts with a different phrase. He turns his attention to God, his creator. After all his struggles trying to find meaning in life, in wisdom, in work, and riches, and power, and pleasure, and having declared them all meaningless, he turns back to God. When he says, remember, it's not in the sense of don't forget your creator. It's far stronger than that. It's a recognition for him and a plea to us to acknowledge God as our creator and as his created beings to let that affect our whole attitude to how we live our lives. Throughout much of the rest of the book, Solomon has explored and found wanting all other approaches to life. In his backslidden years, he's lived for himself and his own pleasure, with no regard for his maker. But now, in his older age, and as he nears the conclusion of his teaching, he comes back to a place where he sees things in perspective. Getting and keeping things in perspective is so important. Often we disagree with someone. Uh, and when we disagree with someone, it's because we're viewing things from a different perspective, from a different angle, a different time frame, different values, or through different lenses. I used to travel out to the United States on business, and one of my colleagues out there had this picture on his office wall. I don't know if you can see it clearly, but it shows the world as viewed by a New Yorker, where everything revolved around New York, and nothing beyond was of much significance. Clearly not true, but the picture was created because of the mindset of some Americans at that time of the relative importance of New York and of uh, the United States as a whole to the rest of the world. It would be more fun if you were in the room for this next piece, so we could see firsthand the results of different perspectives. Instead, viewing this image might cause some disagreements in households watching online. This picture may not be new to you, but I wonder when you look at the picture, do you see a beautiful young woman, or do you see the older, more wizened woman? They're both there. You may have to screw your eyes up to be able to see the one you're not seeing immediately, but they are both there. <laughs> Folks here in the Octagon filming are, are puzzled by this, but I can tell you they're both there. I don't know if you've seen them at home. You see, for much of his writings in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's been viewing things under the sun, in the here and now, and his conclusion to this has been that this is a world of vapor, that life is meaningless. Everything he's touched or engaged with disappoints and doesn't last. 
He's lived life to please himself only, with no care for anyone else, least of all God. That's so true of many today. People who are seeking to gain as much wealth for themselves as possible. Those who will climb over anyone in order to progress their careers. Those who spend all their time pleasing themselves rather than investing in others. Engaging with things that of themselves aren't wrong, but living selfishly. I read a story the other day of a highly successful executive on a six-figure salary with a company car and loads of benefits. She lived in a plush apartment and traveled the world extensively. Then, through economic downturn, she was made redundant. She had a good settlement that brought, in, brought her a bit of time, but she knew that if she didn't land a similar role, all the trappings of success would start to disappear. When questioned about this, she said, I know I'm probably going to lose the material things. I can almost accept that. But do you know what I'm most afraid of losing? It's hope. As Solomon nears the end of his life, he remembers his creator. He remembers that when the dust returns to the ground, his spirit will return to God who gave it. He realizes that meaningless though this life in this world may seem, it leads on to another world, to another life. In contrast to those whose philosophy is that we only have one life, so let's make every day count, we believe that once our life on this earth is done, we shall be raised to new life with Jesus. Not only that, but the kingdom we shall be citizens of is one where there's no sin and no suffering and no sickness. And we shall be forever with our Lord. I told you this passage was a joy passage. If that isn't a joyous hope, I don't know what is. We're going to look now at the final verses of, uh, of chapter 12, and Emma is going to read those uh, for us. Chapter 12, verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise were like goads. Their collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end. And, many, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is his duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Thanks, Emma. My third theme is respond to God, your creator and your judge. Now as we reach the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, these last six verses are written not by Solomon himself, but by the narrator. We don't know who he is, but he provides a mini-character reference for Solomon and speaks of the thoroughness of the process he's been through. 
He uses words like pondered and searched out to show that these were considered thoughts. He acknowledges Solomon as wise and as a teacher who imparted knowledge and wisdom to the people. Not just in the words of his, this book, but in uh, many of the Proverbs. He sought to write words that were upright and true. Words that were his honest assessment, not words that would be pleasing to others. In verse 11, the words, or the truth and the directions given, are likened to nails, to firmly embedded nails. The aim being to secure to that which is good the lives of those who otherwise would be unstable and wavering. These words, the words of the wise and the collected sayings, are given by one shepherd. Here we have confirmation that the words we have here in Scripture, though written by a variety of different authors over many centuries, are all inspired by God. What we have here is God's manual to lead us into a life of fulfillment here on earth and on into eternity. If we live by the words in this book, we will know contentment and joy in this life. Life on earth will be meaningful and will prepare us for an eternity in his presence. We then come to the glorious conclusion of the book. After searching for satisfaction and happiness in life, in a whole host of created things under the sun, we learn that there is one source and one source only for this, and that is in us fearing God and keeping his commandments. We need to acknowledge God as the creator of the universe, the creator of each one of us, and to recognize our place as his created beings subject to his rule and reign. When we do this, we will approach him with a sense of awe and reverence, recognizing his authority and his right to judge us according to the instruction we're given in his word. We know from all that Solomon has written that our lives are like a mist or a vapor. They can be snuffed out at any time. Whereas we come to a God who was and is and is to come. He's always existed and will exist for eternity. We come as sinful beings, just like Adam and Eve. We've fallen short of God's standards. We've done things that we know were wrong and we failed to do things that God would have had us do. And we come before a God who is utterly holy, just as Owen read earlier in Psalm 99, a God who is utterly holy. So we come with awe and reverence. So how will our lives display that we truly fear God? Well, we can read it in Scripture. We read from Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 13, if we fear God, we will keep his commandments. Our honor, love, and respect for him will mean we want to do things that please him. In Proverbs 8 and verse 13, 
we read, if we fear God, we will hate evil just as he hates evil. In Psalm 111 and verse 10, we read that if we fear God, we will follow his precepts or instructions revealed in his word and have good understanding. And in Psalm 112, we will find great delight in keeping his commands. Doing so won't be wearisome or a chore. We'll love doing so. Verse 13 goes on to say that fearing God and keeping his commandments is the duty of all mankind. We looked a few weeks ago at uh, the Westminster Catechism, which picks up on this theme and says, uh, and uh, asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And the response to that question is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Folks, that's why we're here. Yes, we acquire learning. We have careers. We form relationships. Maybe we get married and have children. We engage in pastimes. We keep ourselves fit or not. But none of these is our primary purpose in life. We're here because God created us for relationship with him. And the right response is for us to live lives that glorify him, that cause others to turn to him, and to enjoy the relationship we have with him. And finally, in verse 14, we're given another reason to fear God. There is a day coming when he will judge every person. And on that day, nothing will be hidden from him. We may be able to put on a mask and hide our true selves from one another, but nothing escapes his attention, whether it's good in our life or evil. It's not just our actions that will come under his scrutiny on that day. He knows our thought lives. He understands our motives, whether they're pure or selfish. There will be judgment for all on that day. And there are only two outcomes of that judgment. For those who've confessed their shortcomings and asked forgiveness and accepted the complete work of Jesus in dying on the cross to pay the penalty for their sins, they will appear clothed in his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, and will escape the wrath of God and be rewarded with eternal life. For those who failed to respond to the good news of the gospel, who've not feared God, who've lived lives for themselves and for their own pleasure, they will suffer the wrath of God. Friends, this is serious. If anyone watching this today is in that latter category, living lives with no regard to the future, I urge you to confess your sin, to seek forgiveness, and to place Jesus first and foremost in your life. You won't regret it. Life on earth will take on a different dimension for you as you live for him and seek to love him, to love others and to serve others. Life here and now will become meaningful. 
But much more than that, you will know that your future in eternity is secure. This is how the Apostle Paul put it when writing to the Philippians. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am going to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. As we conclude this series, let me ask you, what's your perspective on life? Does life seem pretty meaningless? If so, are you viewing things as Solomon did for much of this book, purely as under the sun or here and now? Have you taken your gaze off God and started to place your trust and hope in other things? Or maybe you've never put your trust in God and haven't yet found the joy of living life as he intended for us, as set out in his word. I urge you, come to a place where you put God at the first, in the, at the first place in your life. I urge you to live a life following him. I'm going to close there and hand back to Owen and then uh, we will sing our final song.